Many of you don't know this, but two years ago I went on my first and only mission with a Navy SEAL team. I led this team to the altar where my nephew, a recent graduate of the Navy SEALs, was getting married. So it's the only time I would ever be able to say that I was associated with a group of Navy SEALs on a mission. It's been pretty fun for me to be able to do that too. Seriously, my nephew... uh, my nephew became a Navy SEAL. He's down in San Diego, and I'm, we got the, the privilege of meeting his, his beautiful wife, and, and now he's off in a part of the world I can't really tell you about right now. Um, uh, these men are big. I mean, the guys who are part of his world are burly and buff and hyper-masculine. Um, but when they were in BUDS, which is the SEAL training program, to find out whether or not they have the metal to be Navy SEALs, they would float for hours in the cold Pacific waters off the coast of San Diego, then be forced to swim to shore and then spend the night soaking wet in their underwear laying on the sand just to see if they could handle it if they fell out of the sky sometime and had to survive somewhere in the world. Do you know how they kept each other warm? It wasn't by being tough, but by laying on top of each other. Now imagine what that would take for a Navy SEAL type guy in his undies. You'd have to be freezing to death to finally say, I don't care what you think of me. Please lay on top of me. Please, please. And that's literally what they do. In a very real sense, they can't make it without each other. Today we had a reading from Paul's letter to the Ephesians that he writes from his imprisonment in Rome, imprisoned for his bold profession about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the preeminence of the risen Son of God. He was appealing to believers everywhere to be unified, to be one in spirit, to be one in purpose, to be one in mission, and to make his point, if you didn't notice from the text, Paul uses the word one nine times in seven verses. <laughs> that's, that's quite an emphasis, and you don't have to be a biblical scholar to figure out Paul's trying to make a point. Why would unity be so important to Paul? This is sort of what we want to discuss today in many ways, but primarily I can tell you what it's about is because that is how the triune God lives, as one in community. And when his people are doing so, it glorifies him. It makes people see him in the real and the now. You uh, have the privilege of celebrating what the church is celebrating today. It's called Pentecost Sunday. It's about the birth of the church. Not merely people who align with a set of principles, but a people who all share the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit Sometimes churches don't talk about the Holy Spirit at all. It's the third person of the Trinity, a Father, a Son, and a Spirit, one being but three distinct persons living in complete and total harmony with each other. And Paul is encouraging people that this is the way you are to live. Now, that is extraordinarily challenging in super cities like Los Angeles, where it's just really easy for folks to, to live individualistic lives. I would say most of us, I don't have to be really bold, don't know our neighbor's names. 
Uh, most of us don't have those good old-fashioned family par- uh, picnics with the neighbors and block parties. Uh, most of us, that's not our experience. If you spend two hours on a freeway every day, it's kind of sort of hard to think, hey, I got an idea. Let's go out again and spend some time in community. I mean, I get it. I really do. Um, but nonetheless, we're called as a church on Pentecost Sunday of all Sundays to say, clearly this is some component that is important to God that his people would live together. And so I really want to talk about how we are unified today in two separate ways. And according to the text in Ephesians 4, 1, and 3, we're first and foremost unified in our desire for God's glory. That should be the number one thing that unifies believers. We are unified for the glory of God. Let me read the text again, verses 1 through 3. Paul, he writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Ever notice how we behave more appropriately when we're in the presence of somebody we honor or fear? How we're not at our very worst, but instead at our very best. At my nephew's SEAL graduation in San Diego, I had the honor of meeting the commanding officer of the Navy SEALs. I've never tried to stand so tall in my whole life and suck it in, man. Like, yes, sir, I get it. And he just kind of smiled at me and said, good try. We're, we're told in today's passage that we are literally walking amidst the presence of the Holy Spirit. We are walking with Jesus, and we're to behave accordingly. And the characteristics listed are we are called to be one, unified, and manifesting. And here they are. Humility, gentleness, patience, endurance, love, and peace. These are called elsewhere in Paul's writings as the fruit of the Spirit. Over here behind you, you'll see that there is a tree. I had a... Um, this is what grows on that tree, uh, little oranges. I, I, and I'd say they were these clementines, but they're really bitter. I mean, you can eat them. I do sometimes when I'm really hungry. Normally what I'll do is I'll just suck the juice out of them just to say I, you know, I'm living organically or whatever. Uh, so I can fit in here in California for a change. Over a year ago, I don't remember that tree being so prominent, and perhaps you don't either. Because see, a little over a year ago, this whole back area was different. And that thing was buried in weeds and crud and a wall, and the, and the sun couldn't get to it. But then Dale Witt, where are you, big Dale? Dale's up here. Dale is uh, our groundskeeper extraordinaire, a Renaissance man who not only has a degree from a seminary, but is also this, this amazing person, curator of lawns everywhere. And he's actually worked in places like the UCLA Gardens. He's a botanist and all these different titles you give to people who work outside. Dale started working and tending to all of this. And as he started to work to make this tree healthy, it started producing a lot of fruit. But when it was buried in weeds and vines and hidden from the sun, it was unable to do so. We are first and foremost to be united in our mutual desire to produce fruit in our lives. Fruit that points to the one who is tending to our spiritual health. See, when things start going well in your life, when people start to see the peace and the joy that is increasingly becoming a part of your life as a believer, 
It is supposed to point them to the person who's actually been making that happen, not to, wow, aren't you amazing? You know, aren't you amazing that you were able to be like that? It's supposed to direct that to, look at what somebody's doing to enable you to be that at rest about things. These five characteristics are so critical because when they're presented in our lives, people recognize them as the character of Jesus in us. This was what was so befuddling and so radical about the gospel is that God incarnated as a man, and he was a lot nicer than everybody thought he was going to be. I mean, everybody literally thought he was ticked off, like, all the time. And so now all of a sudden it's like, okay, this is God in the flesh, and this guy's so much kinder and more gracious and more patient and really seems to kind of cozy up to people who are really struggling with sin and really seems to hate those religious freaks who are self-righteous. And this is really, this is puzzling to me. And when, so when we see these characteristics in our lives of humility and gentleness and patience and endurance and love and peace, they scream, Jesus, be like Jesus. Jesus changed my life. Now, for some of us, we recognize that we're still struggling as believers. Dr. R.C. Sproul, one of my professors, said this in his book, The Holiness of God. We have experienced reconciliation with God. We've been born of the Spirit and have had the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. We are no longer enemies with God but his friends. All of things are, all these things are true for the Christian. But we must be careful remembering that with our conversion, our natural human natures were not annihilated. There remains a vestige of our fallen nature with which we must struggle every day. There still resides a corner of the soul that takes no delight in God. We see its ragged edge in our continued sin, and we can observe it in our lethargic worship. Sadly, I recently received a long email from an acquaintance who'd abandoned his faith because he'd come to realize that he no longer believed what he thought he always did. But in the mass email sent to everyone, apparently, in his outbox, because we weren't that really close, he said he'd finally found happiness, and I quote, by living for himself as himself. Now, this view isn't new, all right? In fact, all of us by nature live this way. Selfishness is ingrained in our sinful nature, and it is, when you think about it, at the root of all of this earth's evils. Don't know what your issue is. Is it poverty? Good, you should be against poverty. You know what makes poverty? When really greedy people keep all that stuff God gave them for themselves. Or something ravages a community and creates poverty. It's evil, and it's really rooted in somebody's selfishness. When you, when you hate war, when you hate all the things that happen in our world, those are generally the byproduct of somebody saying, I'm going to live for myself as myself. This is really bad advice, friends. The last thing in the world you want is me to live for myself as myself. You're not going to want to be in community with me if that's the case. Ask my poor family. They see remnants of this. It's not attractive. At least my acquaintance understood that living for himself and being a follower of Christ were incompatible concepts. I'll give him that. 
Because Jesus said in Mark 10, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus is saying, I didn't even come for myself. I came for you. If you're going to be a follower of Christ, you have to live selflessly, not just because he says to do it, and at risk here is your salvation. As Isis so beautifully put it, most of us, depending, regardless of our denominational background, have to come to terms with the fact, if we're going to say we're Christians, that we are rescued and made right with God by his grace alone. Our good works don't make us better with God, don't improve our standing with God. It simply puts us at rest with God. Now we find ourselves saying, okay, now I want to emulate your kindness to me. I want to glorify you. This is our our command to be unified in our desire for his glory. Jesus is saying, if you want my character to be manifest in the world, it's going to have to be a selfless one. On May 2nd, 2011, SEAL Team 6 killed Osama bin Laden. America celebrated, which was sort of awkward because you're like, we're celebrating somebody's death. And then some Navy SEALs decided to take a victory lap, announcing to the press of their involvement, one SEAL boasting that he was the one who actually shot bin Laden. And I want you to know that I know that amongst the SEALs, this is a grave sin. You are effectively cutting yourself off from any fellowship with the SEALs when you do this kind of thing. They do not consider you one of them. Once you take a bow. You see, in the documentary about this raid, it really was kind of a crapshoot who was going to get to kill the person anyway. They were clearing the house. They met armed resistance around each corner. And they discovered, by chance, the person who got to kill Osama bin Laden. It was a team effort. And amongst the SEALs, no one SEAL is more important than the team. No one is more important than the team. And as believers, we're called to be united in our desire that God's glory be seen in us. We're on Jesus Team 1. As opposed to SEALs Team 6, I just thought it was a shot. Um, In our world, Jesus and only Jesus is celebrated for the victories he wins. That's it. That's all. Jesus is the one who gets credit for what he's doing in his church, what he's doing with his people. As believers, we are unified in our desire for God's glory. Second thought for you this morning is this. We are all unified by our dependence on God's grace. Again, the scriptures, verses 4 through 7 of Ephesians 4. There is one body. Now, this is where Paul's going to go on his one binge, so to speak. All right, so buckle up. Here come eight ones in three verses. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, and that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Like the seals, you and I are bolder in the presence of those who make us stronger, And while it's important to humbly recognize our need for each other and our need for everyone who serves on Jesus Team One, uh, the one team member that is unseen but key to our our success is the Holy Spirit. 
And again, this is what the church worldwide celebrates on this day, is that in Acts 2, you can read about the new world that God has created for the believing family of, of Christians, the Spirit of God living in each believer. You are a tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. This building isn't. We don't worship a God who's in there. If you're a believer, you worship a God whose Holy Spirit lives in you. You are a temple of the Spirit. By nature, we're not able to obey the Lord's commands. Even our ability to initially profess faith in God is born of the Holy Spirit's work in our heart. The Holy Spirit is the team member who pulls us all together, unifies us, strengthens us, empowers us, both individually and as a group. In Ephesians 4 and 4 through 7, the word states that God is over all, through all, and in all. I want you to think about that because he's not talking about creation. He's talking about the church. He is over us all, he is through us all, and he's in us all. If you are the church, he is knitting you together. The Holy Spirit's power and strength are present in all believers to embolden us to live for God's glory, which is something we can't do on our own. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit's constant presence and strength, and it is his loving presence that stirs our affections to obey. Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So he's even speaking to this day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit has surrounded the people of God for all of history. And now Jesus is saying, I'm going to send, when I, am, when I ascend to the throne of my Father, and all heaven, all authority on heaven and, in heaven and on earth is given to me, I'm going to send this helper, this spirit, and you're going to know him because he's going to live in you. R.C. Sproul says, as we grow in our knowledge of him, we gain a deeper love for his purity and a deeper sense of dependence on his grace. We learn that he is altogether worthy of our adoration. The fruit of our growing love for him is the increase of reverence for his name. We love him now because we see his loveliness. We adore him now because we see his majesty. We obey him now because his Holy Spirit dwells within us. We are unified by our dependence on God's grace. My nephew, Drew, is six foot four, 250 pounds of trident-wearing M16 Toten Navy SEAL. He lives in San Diego. I check on him fairly regularly because he can mysteriously disappear from time to time. Do you know why I check in on him? Do you imagine that it's because of how big he is? Or how important a role he has in our nation's security? Or how strong he is? Do you think for a second that there's any threat to me? He could squish me like a bug. I do it because of the, the relationship I have with him. His, his mom is my sister, the one who led me to Christ. His mom is my kid's Aunt Linny. I love Drew. 
not because of what he does, not, you know, for any other reason than he is my nephew. I remember when I visited him at the Naval Academy in his first year. This is the kind of influence his uncle, Pastor Chuck, has been. They're not allowed to not wear their uniforms, so he came and I picked him up, and like on the way to the ESPN zone, he switched out of his uniform into some jeans and a T-shirt. See, this is the kind of thing I wanted to help him do is break little rules because that's what good pastors do. See, my relationship with him goes way back. I love him because he's my sister's son and my nephew. And, And I would hate to have a message about obedience and about the presence of God's Spirit in our lives without saying to you that the gospel's inviting you to have a relationship with God through Jesus' sacrifice for you. The Holy Spirit isn't an it or an entity. He is a person, the third person of the triune God, every bit as personable and at the same time reflecting all of the same characteristics of Jesus. Compassion patience, all of the things that we've been commanded to reflect to this world. The third person of the triune God walks with us through this life in a relationship of community. And he does that as we all walk through this life with him, Jesus, and the Father. We do this together. We are one church, just as the Father, Son, and Spirit are one. We're one in our desire for God's glory We're one in our dependence on God's grace. You know, we may worship as a church most times uh, with two services. But we are literally one church. Now, we'll go back next week to 9 and 11. (laughs) And then in the fall, we'll, we'll join together again. But we want to do these services to remind us that this is not just a place you blow in, get your meat your service, get your word, take off. This is not a fast food restaurant. This is a family meal. This is a time to come together and know people that will help you as you walk through life. And one of the greatest things we'd love for you to take away from these meetings together, these one services together, is a greater sense of I really need to know others. I really want to connect in community in some way. It's it's really the way you deepen your relationship with God because that's how he lives in community. Let us pray. Father, today we're grateful for the opportunity we have to break from our regular routine and celebrate Pentecost, which for us is really a reminder of the church being set up, that the Spirit of God now lives in us. Father, that you have worked in such a way in our hearts that we want to follow you. And and I pray that we would see continued growth in our understanding of who you are as a result of our involvement with other believers. That we would warm to you as we gather close together. That when our souls are growing cold towards you, that the, the, the life and the energy of another person who follows you in our congregation would bring new life to us, would heat up that which needs to be warmed. And I pray that today as we take communion together and celebrate the reality of being one body, one faith, that you would move and strengthen and, 
and reignite passions for Jesus in people's lives. We pray in his name.